listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Welcome back to another episode of Hooked on Learning. And today we're going to cover the next installment in the series of bird strikes that plague the fire service. Today's bird strike that we're going to focus on is situational awareness. So situational awareness defined in the aviation world is the ability to monitor or perceive elements in the environment, the comprehension of that meaning, and the projection of their status in the near future. So another way to think about situational awareness is your perception. And your perception is your reality. So we have to make sure that we understand not only um, where the fire is at this very second, but also where the fire may be going or is going. So that's all part of situational awareness. Now, um, situational awareness or lacking situational awareness has been identified as one of the primary factors in accidents that can be attributed to human error. So as crews train together or as aviation crews fly together, it is crucial that they learn to communicate effectively and that in turn provides basic information that's traveling back and forth uh, to allow them to understand who is flying the plane and where is the plane going. So with that being said, we're going to listen to uh, the audio from a special on why planes crash and they're going to talk about um, an Air France flight back in 2009 where it basically crashed into the ocean. So listen to this and think of that shell model that we talked about in an earlier episode, the Intro to Crew Resource Management. So here we go, here goes the audio. Around 2.05 a.m., when the Airbus A330 was flying through a storm system, all three of its speed indicators stopped working. As a result, the aircraft's autopilot turned off. With the captain on break, the two co-pilots were forced to fly the plane manually. The least experienced pilot, 32-year-old Pierre Bonin, was in the right seat and said, I have the controls. Co-pilot David Robert was in the left seat, and even though considerably more experienced, he let Bonin fly. Theoretically, it was possible to still fly the airplane under those conditions. Challenging, but manageable. Yes. Although they lost the autopilot and speed indicators, they were flying normally and safely. But then suddenly, and without Robert knowing, Bonin does something almost inexplicable. He pulls back on his side stick and raises the nose of the plane. That causes the aircraft to fall, and the stall warning sounds. Oh, that's the alarm. Stall alarm. Over the next four and a half minutes, the stall warning will sound 75 times. But strangely, neither pilot will mention it. And unbeknownst to Robert, Bonin will keep the nose of the plane up almost the entire time. Exactly what he shouldn't do. A decision that experts still can't understand. It's difficult to explain that. I just don't know why he did that. And there's nothing to you that makes sense on, on, on any experience or intellectual level about pulling back when you should push forward? No. Nothing at all? 
Because of Bonan's actions, the plane is attempting to climb, but is actually losing altitude. Robert appears to have no idea the nose is being lifted when he says, What the hell is happening? I don't understand what's happening. If he had known what Bonin was doing, Robert could have conceivably solved the problem very easily at this point. So you're sitting where Bonin was sitting, and he starts pulling back. Right. Sullenberger showed us why he thinks in this situation the design of the airplane helped keep Robert in the dark. And it's a subtle movement compared to more traditional airplanes. And unless I happen to notice you visually doing it, I would have no way of telling you right, that it happened. Because your side stick is not linked to mine. When I move this one, that one never budgets. By traditional airplanes, Sullenberger means those built by Boeing. There are only two major airliner manufacturers in the world, Boeing and Airbus. And the two have different cockpit designs and philosophies. The main difference, Airbus uses side stick technology, Boeing uses a yoke. In this airplane, you have a big control wheel. It's right in front of both pilots. We sat down in a Boeing 747 simulator to see the difference. They're mechanically linked. They're not independent. So if, if I move mine, yours moves in unison. Had he been pulling back in a Boeing, how, how would it have looked? Like this. And on my side, it's in my lap. Yes. Robert would clearly have known what was happening if this was happening in a Boeing. I think it would be obvious, yeah. Airbus didn't respond to our request for comment. However, they have never wavered in their public support of their cockpit design. At 2.10 a.m., five minutes after the autopilot disengaged, the Airbus A330 continues to lose significant altitude as the captain re-enters the cockpit and says, What the hell are you doing? Bonin, the least experienced pilot, continues to hold back on his side stick, but still doesn't seem to understand what's happening. We've lost control of the airplane, Bonin says. Robert tells the captain, we've totally lost control of the plane. We don't understand at all. Almost a minute later, as the plane is now just 10,000 feet above the surface of the ocean, Bonin finally reveals the crucial information they've needed. He shouts, I've had the stick back the whole time. Robert seems to instantly realize what's going on. He jumps in and says, give me the controls, give me the controls. But it's too late. About 40 seconds later, the two co-pilots say what will be their last words, Robert. Damn it, we're going to crash. This can't be happening. Bonin, but what's happening? Four seconds after that, the voice recorder cuts out. So obviously, as, as you just heard, Air France Flight 447 was the epitome of a disaster, and it was uh, a very, very telling illustration of inadequate situational awareness. So if you think back to the shell model we covered at the very beginning of this uh, class, which is a couple podcasts ago, the shell model can go back, we can go back and identify each part of that shell model as it relates to this flight. And if you take a line of duty death report, sadly, you can go back through that shell model and, uh, and identify these things too. So quick review of the shell model, S-H-E-L-L, software, hardware, environment, and then central liveware and personnel liveware, so human interaction. Software on a flight like this might include things like uh, policies, procedures, uh, manuals, placards. It may include the actual software. And you think back to this actual accident, they said that the speed sensor iced up. So that was a hardware issue. The result on the software is it took the plane out of the autopilot, and that was all due to the environment, so the E of the shell model. 
um, not only the environment outside the plane, which again caused that icing up of the speed center, but also the environment back in the aircraft. People were not aware to the environment prior to this happening. So that lack of situational awareness caused a misperception by the person who ultimately ended up flying the plane. And he used a maneuver that is typically done at a low altitude rather than a high altitude, which then put the plane into a stall. So keep that environment in mind real quick. The L to L, so the personnel versus the central live wire, the human interaction in this, wasn't very effective either. There was a communication breakdown, and a lot of it had to do with situational awareness. So in aviation, typically one pilot will monitor the plane, and one person will fly the plane. So pilot monitoring, pilot flying. At the very beginning, there was a clear communication as to which pilot was quote-unquote flying the plane, albeit he was flying it improperly. The other pilot should have then been the pilot monitoring, meaning going through that other software, the flight manual, policies, procedures, all those sorts of things. However, that didn't happen. And also, um, another thing that didn't take place was both pilots, especially that pilot monitoring, was not aware to the environment. Stall. The stall warning sounded 75 times without anybody wondering what was going on. So one would think that perhaps if that pilot monitoring heard that stall warning, he would have asked sooner or earlier on in the process, what are you doing to the flight controls? Stop pulling up. But it was a total loss of situational awareness, and it manifested itself at the worst possible time. And as a result, a lot of people paid the ultimate price for that, and everybody on board that aircraft lost their life. So when we talk about situational awareness, one uh, thing that they say in aviation is plane, path, and people. Or in short, uh, also short, aviate, navigate, communicate. So you have to be aware of the plane, the path, and the people. That includes the crew, the passengers, dispatchers, air traffic controllers, etc. And there's obviously uh, a fire service correlation here where we think about the incident or the fire and then the path and the people. So what does plane path people mean? Well, uh, when we talk about the plane, we're saying ensure that the aircraft is on a safe heading and it, it, that it's at a safe height. And those considerations include increasing the power um, on the engines, changing the aircraft's heading, if it's aiming at high terrain, if you're in an icy condition, consider exiting that weather as soon as possible or ensuring that all available de-icing and anti-icing equipment has been activated. Also with the plane, we want to identify and confirm the problem. And three, we want to carry out any memory items applicable to the problem, such as engine failure, engine shutdown. Once those are completed, the plane is theoretically now secured and flying safely, which allows us to focus on the path. First part of the path is who's flying. So if it's a two-pilot environment, they need to decide who is flying. And sometimes they may decide it's better for the captain to monitor all the systems while the first officer or the co-pilot flies the aircraft. Second part of path is where are we going? So figure that out. If it requires a, an, an alternate landing location, then that needs to be decided upon. Also with path number three is how much time do we need? And number four would be execute. So once you've decided the plan, execute it. 
Of course, it's important to reevaluate your decisions and if need be, change them up. Last part of playing path people is the people. So finally, it's time to communicate to all of the appropriate parties what has happened and what you intend to do. So air traffic control, they need to be advised of our intentions. Other crew members, they need to be uh, advised of, of uh, our intentions as well. And then operations at the airport would also be advised and, uh, and air traffic control would generally contact the airline operations and emergency management systems would then come into play. So fire service wise, what does that mean for us? We have the plane, which may be the vehicle we're driving in or the actual incident as a whole. And then we would have the path. So where is the fire right now? Who's in charge and where is it going? And then we have the people. How are we going to execute our plan? So um, what are those assignments and so on? And we base these off of critical factors. So we have eight critical factors. Number one, actions. Number two, arrangement. Number three, the building type. Number four, fire size, extent, and location. Number five are the life safety factors. Number six is the occupancy type. Number seven are our resources. Number eight is special circumstances. We can then divide these into two categories, fixed factors and variable factors. Fixed factors are things that do not change. The building type, the arrangement, uh, the occupancy type. Variable factors are things that do change. Our actions, the fire size extent, uh, the, the size extent and location of the fire, our resources, and then any special circumstances such as the weather. So it's important to consider that as it relates to a fire, plane, path, people. So the conclusion of that is when dealing with any malfunction, whether it's on board an aircraft or at an incident, it is absolutely imperative that we stay calm and methodically assess and deal with the situation. So we have the threat. The last thing we want to do is provide another error. So by remembering the plain path people rule, you will better um, be able to do this in a way that ensures nothing is actually left to chance. So that brings us to team situational awareness. And this can be referred to as sharing is caring. So the degree to which every team member possesses the situational awareness required for his or her responsibilities can be defined as team situational awareness. And it's all in the details. There are no room for assumptions on, uh, on IDLH incidents such as a structure fire. And it, a, an example of this would be the very tragic incident that unfolded in Westland um, when Brian Wolke was killed in the line of duty at a commercial fire in a strip mall. And unfortunately, the conditions there didn't match um, on the outside what was going on on the inside and vice versa. And it, be, it becomes a, a very difficult situation for everybody to monitor those critical factors when they're not able to see all of those critical factors. So uh, that was one one example of a really tough scenario. You have a fire occurring at a tough time, basically during shift change, and there's a, a lot of resources um, changing hands and, and moving around, both because of the shift change factor as well as you know the incident that was unfolding. And it's difficult to share um, sometimes the information that's that's unfolding as soon as it's unfolding. And that's why we have standardized communication that's al that allows us to do that because it is not sufficient for one member of the team to be aware of critical information if the team member that needs that information the most is not, a ma is not made aware of that. 
And some examples, the way that we would do that is through priority traffic from a unit to command. And then from command to all the units, we'd have emergency traffic. Another way that we keep situational awareness is through CAN reports by getting the conditions, actions, and needs in everything uh, that's going on. So team situation awareness is the next step in achieving safety and performance as every member needs to be aware and cognitive of what is going, around, going on around them. Now that has a huge fire service correlation when we talk about embedded safety, embedded safety on the task, tactical, and strategic levels and making sure that our system is not overly redundant but that we're also not uh, shooting from the hip and giving a very limited picture or view of what's going on. So when we talk about building situational awareness, there are situations where sometimes we may lose that situational awareness. Uh, similar to an aircraft that's flying through the clouds and they don't suddenly they they don't know if they're flying up or down or left or right and they got to get their bearings. So one model that uh, military aviators use is the Oda loop. So the Oda loop allows people to develop situational influence based off of situational awareness. So the Oda loop stands uh, is an acronym for Observe, orient, decide, and act. So the first part of getting your bearings is to observe. Observe. That is situational awareness. Once you have a better understanding of the situation, now you want to orient yourself to the situation, and that is called situational understanding. Think of the entanglement prop upstairs in the confidence course. As you start getting hung up, the worst thing you could do is try to be a bull in a china shop because what's going to happen? You're just going to be caught worse uh, and in more places. So if you observe and think what's going on, where could I be caught? Okay, feels like the lower part of my bottle. Okay, now I'm going to orient myself to it. I'm going to try to understand this situation. What could be caught in the lower end of my bottle? Could it be the knob to turn my bottle on? Could it be the bell for my low pressure alarm? Okay, I'm going to move to the left. I'm going to move to the right. What has more pressure? That's going to allow me to develop situational judgment, which is the decide portion of the Oda loop, and ultimately I'm going to act on that decision, which is situational influence, and I'm going to take whatever um, I'm going to take whatever actions necessary to uh, to remove myself from that situation. So, situational awareness. We're talking about monitoring, assessing, and sharing the critical factors and the conditions and the actions and the needs of whatever's going on on that incident scene. We want to make sure that we're um, continuously monitoring, assessing, and sharing all relevant operational factors that are needed to remain situationally aware. That includes smoke conditions, anticipated direction of travel, big end, little end, uh, the responders, the condition of the responders, capabilities of responders, and the quantity of responders, our water supply, and any other red flags that may manifest themselves while we're on that incident, uh, especially during those critical times. So to sum up the situational awareness chapter, um, we'll just close out um, this bird strike by talking about performance barriers. So there are some common barriers of situational awareness, and I'm guessing everybody here can figure this out. Number one is complacency. Um, we talked about Rickover's rules, and we talked about uh, Gordon Graham and accident causation, and they said arrogance, ignorance, complacency are, are, are common mistakes. They're also barriers to situational awareness. And then we throw in fatigue and stress on top of that. And that can really, really, really have a significant effect on um, one's ability to maintain that situation awareness and not become the moth to the flame. 
and now we are uh, making decisions to save 30 seconds, but we're costing ourselves the next 30 minutes or three hours or even longer, depending. So this is a stressful job. It's a stressful field, and uh, fatigue is not uncommon. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Jason Hendrian is doing a report on sleep deprivation as it affects the fire service, so lots of good information coming from him. Uh, he's just the man for the job on that one, and it's important that we understand that, how it affects our decision-making especially during non-discretionary events, and we have to challenge one another to ensure heightened awareness as it relates to situational awareness. We have to be sure we're not skipping steps and creating shortcuts, like not giving a thorough initial rate report or forgetting to do a follow-up report. Those things have to happen because we need to be situationally aware. So that covers today's podcast. Please join us for the next podcast as we discuss training. Thank you for listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast. Until next time, be smart.